at least from that perspective, that NAR might be in line to lose a good amount of its membership. And we don't know necessarily yet what effect that will have, but it does seem from the outside like the organization is kind of dealing with a bit of internal chaos. Good morning. This is Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. We are recording from the same place for once. It's a little echoey. I know. Yeah. Apologies if it does get a little echoey at times. We're in Miami for The Real Deal's annual forum. And in the coming weeks, we'll be airing episodes from interviews we did on site for Deconstruct. Yes. Yeah, we expect tons of content from the forum. But today we are talking about a bombshell verdict that involves the National Association of Realtors, which has really rocked the industry. We've got Sheridan Wool, our residential reporter in New York, who has been really leading our coverage of the NAR lawsuit. And Harrison Connery, another New York resi reporter who has been looking at how the suit has been affecting brokerages. But before that, let's get into the news of last week. And I think we have to start with one of our biggest stories. Freddie Mac is investigating mortgage broker Meridian Capital Group over a deal the broker did for the huge multifamily agency, specifically involving loan information. Right. So while that investigation continues, Meridian is barred from brokering deals on behalf of any Freddie Mac lender. And for those unfamiliar, many firms will originate loans and then sell them to Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac will then securitize these loans into pools and sell them to investors. Freddie Mac is, of course, a government lender. Yes. And it's important to note that Freddie Mac is huge. In 2022, the agency provided $614 billion to more than 1,000 lenders, according to its annual housing report. And Meridian's bread and butter is arranging thousands of loans for small building owners. Right. So they're definitely connected there. Freddie Mac could find no evidence of wrongdoing and could close their investigation and resume working with Meridian, but that's still yet to be determined. And don't think we've forgotten about WeWork. The co-working firm officially filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy this week after what feels like what, months of rumors? Yes. So WeWork, once worth $47 billion, has filed to reorganize. But as a part of its bankruptcy filing, it has immediately canceled 69 leases across the U.S. and Canada and will shutter those locations if it hasn't done so already. In New York, WeWork is planning to ditch 40 leases. There are also leases on the chopping block in San Francisco and Los Angeles, Boston, Seattle, all markets where WeWork had tried to establish a substantial presence. And to your point about months of rumors, WeWork announced in August that there was substantial doubt about the firm's ability to remain a going concern. So it was really a matter of time. Many buildings we work leased are tied to commercial mortgage-backed securities or CMBS loans, meaning those investors may start to feel some pain if they haven't already. You can check out my story where I looked at all of the New York landlords with CMBS exposure, and some of them leased 100% of their buildings to WeWork. And we've definitely seen some landlords already default on CMBS loans, tied to buildings where WeWork had either vacated or canceled their lease. Right. And last week, we reported Keith Larson and Rich Bachman had the story that RFR, Kushner, and Van Barton were three landlords that expected WeWork to end their leases. And one last piece of news from South Florida, which seems fitting. Yes. <laughs> Famed New York developer Harry Macklow is partnering with the Perez Families Related Group to acquire a waterfront co-op community in North Bay Village. What are they planning to do at that site? Hundreds of luxury units across the three acres. Most likely it'll be condos. 
Yeah, that seems classic Miami. I was just walking around uh, earlier today and it's great. There's so much construction going on. It's really wild. Yeah, we're staying in Wynwood and it feels like every block is under construction. Yes, I'm looking at a crane right now. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump into the lawsuit against NAR and the verdict here. A quick recap again. So on Halloween, an eight-member jury found the National Association of Realtors, as well as Keller Williams and Home Services of America, guilty of conspiring to inflate commissions charged to home sellers. The jury's verdict came with an order to pay the plaintiffs which are a group of more than 500,000 home sellers in Missouri, $1.8 billion in damages. We're still waiting for the judge to give final approval on the jury's ruling, and antitrust rules do say that a judge can triple the damages. If that happens, the damages could total more than $5 billion. But there's also a similar trial slated to start in Chicago next year, which could rock the industry even further. If the plaintiffs win that case and the judge rules to triple the damages, the defendants could be liable for $40 billion. There's also another class action suit that has been filed against a number of other brokerages since the verdict. We'll get into that a little bit more. Some brokers have also spoken out since the ruling, so we'll chat about that. Others have stayed notably silent. And we'll also dig into how this will affect brokerages financially. Many suffered huge stock drops after the ruling. So Sheridan Harrison, we've briefed our listeners on where we are now with this trial. Sheridan, you've been covering this case for months. So I wanted to start with how we got here. Can you give us a quick explainer on this NAR policy, like what it is, and then when it first came under scrutiny. Yeah, sure. Um, so the rule at issue in the case is called the Clear Cooperation Policy, uh, which dictates that any brokers adding listings to an MLS controlled by the local realtor association, so like under the NAR umbrella, that listing agent has to make an offer of compensation to the buyer's agent. So it essentially requires listing agents to spell out what the buyer's agent commission will be if they close the deal and that commission is charged to the seller. So right before the NAR trial, they actually the organization actually changed the like generally understood interpretation of this rule. Um, they said that the commission offer can be zero um, as long as that's communicated to the buyer's agent. So it's just you know basically you as a seller you're you know going to offer an agent, you know, 6% maybe. Um, that's the conversation you have with, the, with your listing broker. And then the listing broker will have to then say, you know, how, what percentage they want to give a buyer's agent of that commission. So the lawsuit was filed back in 2019. But at the same time, the Department of Justice was also looking into this issue um, under the Trump administration. So that kind of, in, they, they reached a settlement um, back when, you know, Trump was president. And then Um, the Biden administration ended up vacating that judgment. So while all these lawsuits are happening, um, the DOJ is also kind of trying to make inroads on their side as well. Gotcha. Okay. And it's home sellers that flagged this, right? That it was a problem? Yes. Yes. So it's home sellers end up paying the commission um, for, for an agent that they didn't hire is kind of what one of the arguments is. The ruling that we got late last month was one of two class action suits, right? The Stitzer-Burnett case. Can you give us a sense of how the arguments played out in that case, what the homeowners who launched the suit claimed and how NAR and the other brokerages attempted to defend themselves? You just went over kind of one argument, but can you detail it a little bit further? Yeah. So on the plaintiff side, you have the lead attorney, Michael Ketchmark, arguing that this, you know, what 
they're calling commission sharing or like cooperation policy um, resulted in, in what has been alluded to as like a price fixing scheme. So essentially NAR and the, the two brokerages that are named in the suit, um, what the plaintiffs are saying is that they work together to um, set kind of an industry standard commission rate that is difficult to negotiate down because to sell the home, the listing broker needs buyer's agents to bring their clients. The argument is that buyer's agents can steer their clients away from those homes where the commission offer is lower. From the plaintiff's perspective, this kind of you know drives up the commissions that home sellers end up paying, just to kind of incentivize that you know relationship. So during the course of the trial, Ketchmark questioned the CEOs of Keller Williams and Home Services of America about some of their trainings that seemed to touch on this idea. Um, they brought up one that was like a sample training that essentially essentially like laid out this argument, you know, there, it was a hypothetical conversation um, between an agent, you know, and a, and a client uh, where the agent said, this is, this is the commission. And the, the client says, well, I don't, you know, do I have to pay that? And, and, you know, this isn't word for word, but the agent explains that, you know, buyers may not come here. Like a buyer's agent might not bring their clients here if the offer of compensation isn't high. Of course, both of the, the CEOs brushed off this is kind of like their hypothetical conversations of this is just, you know, one way you can negotiate a commission. It's not, we're not telling brokers they have to do this. This is just, you know, a, for the purposes of training, something that you could say. And that they, you know, they said any discussion of commission in like a company-wide event or a training is all just, you know, if they talk about it, it's because it's their experience, not that they're telling people to do that. From NAR's side, um, they even said before the trial that if these rules were to go away, um, you know, that they exist for a reason, that they kind of, that the rules are good for consumers because it allows buyer's agents to afford representation um, where they may not be able to if they were responsible for paying that commission directly. And it kind of, you know, establishes this like general, you know, industry cooperation, you know, hence the name of the rule that, you know, agents incentivizes agents to work together and not, you know, not necessarily to work together to, to change the prices, but just to make that a more like cohesive process. They said before the trial that if these rules were to go away, that the industry might revert to what, you know, the general counsel called the Wild West. So like a situation where brokers can kind of do whatever they need to do to get a deal done. Okay. So they're arguing that this policy keeps things like civil and people in communication, brokers in communication. Yeah. So can you explain why this suit was as big as it was um, or still is, you know, because it's kicked off these others and how the verdict could affect brokerages. So like what policy changes we might see? Yeah. So, well, first the brokerages named in the lawsuit um, along with NAR are going to be on the hook for like a pretty significant amount of damages if the judge does confirm the the current verdict. Um, so that could obviously have a really big impact on their bottom lines, like disp- depending what comes out of the final decision, you know, we don't totally know what that's going to look like, but, you know, financially that's, you know, that's a big commitment. And like you guys, you know, also mentioned there's another big lawsuit on the horizon, the Merle case, that's almost identical to this one. And the damages in that one are estimated to be much higher. And obviously, you know, the the verdict ruling in favor of the plaintiffs in this one definitely makes it seem like that argument, you know, could be replicated and might have some success in another lawsuit. Of course, we don't know what that's going to look like. But if they want to settle that case, obviously having a, a verdict in this one might you know affect how that process goes as well. There's also two other firms that were kind of originally named in the case, um, Anywhere and Remax, who ended up settling before before the case hit trial. And they, you know, as part of their sell- settlement, they've agreed to certain rule changes, um, mostly related to 
how agents disclose the commissions um, and, you know, not allowing agents to buyers agents to sort their listings or like, you know, go through a listings database and sort for, you know, which offer of compensation is the highest. It's possible that the judge in the case, when he issues his ruling, that he might also add some some rule changes. And that would obviously have a big impact on how brokerages do business, um, depending on what those rule changes might be. Okay. Would I think I read this in your reporting, but would any rule changes in that case, um, the Stitzer Burnett, that would just be Missouri? Would they be relegated to that state? Yeah. Um, I don't know, honestly, <laughs> if, that's, if that'll be the case. I mean, the thing is, is that it will probably apply um, to the brokerages themselves. Um, so in that case, that would, you know, be across markets. You know, there are some, if you want to get in the weeds about it, like there's differences between MLSs that are controlled um, by a realtor association and those that are independent. Obviously, this case relates to those that are specifically, NAR sets the rules for MLSs that, you know, are under that umbrella. And just to interject very quickly, MLS stands for Multiple Listing Service, which is essentially a database that home buyers and sellers um, can use to see properties that have been listed by brokers. Um, so, it, you know, the, the impact is potentially much far reaching than just this state um, because of because the organizations like transcend that boundary. Yeah, if I could jump in, you know, I've been speaking to um, an antitrust attorney who is saying that you know, the risk of continuing these practices, you know, has skyrocketed uh, in the wake of the verdict. Um, so it's likely that a lot of companies and a lot of, um, you know, other markets are, are going to try to proactively stop this behavior, you know, minimize the damages should they be sued. Um, so, you know, speaking to the effect this will have on brokerages, one interesting thing to see will be how many copycat suits are filed, because the way antitrust works is, you can be sued over and over again, um, you know, by different sets of plaintiffs, and there's really no limit on on how many times you can be sued. That being said, you know, you can come to a settlement that will, um, you know, in some, in some cases prevent more lawsuits. So, for example, the the classified in the Murrah lawsuit is, um, you know, anybody who's ever used a covered MLS, um, including future users. So, covered MLS users won't be able to sue any of the defendants again, but, you know, that's just about 10 markets, right? So any of those defendants could be sued uh, anywhere else uh, in the country. Now, what's really interesting is, and I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this, anywhere seems to think, you know, spoken to a company representative, anywhere seems to think that um, the settlement they reached precludes them from any more, um, any more lawsuits. Um, but I've been speaking with this antitrust attorney uh, who says that, well, the settlement you reach with a class can only apply to that class. Uh, and, you know, these are two very limited classes. In Sitzer Burnett, it's just folks who've used some local MLSs in, in Missouri and, and the Midwest. I'm, I'm not sure if they go beyond state borders. And then in Merle, it's, um, you know, the covered MLSs. So it's going to be really interesting to follow the story and see if, you know, anywhere is right about this, that they really did come to um, some kind of settlement uh, that precludes further lawsuits, but I don't see how that's possible based on the explanation I got from, uh, you know, my expert and, um, you know, the, the classes as they're defined in the lawsuits. Hmm. That's so interesting. I was wondering that about the other suits. So the, it's, and my understanding of this is minimal, but like double jeopardy doesn't apply to like antitrust lawsuits. Right, right. You can, you know, anyone who you allegedly wronged can sue you. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, potentially, you know, dozens, you know, that, that would be an extreme case uh, of lawsuits. 
Uh, and these are very expensive to litigate. So, you know, they're 1500 to 2000 bucks an hour to litigate. Um, and so, you know, best case scenario, you're, you're spending a lot of money to, to not pay out. But I spoke to, uh, this antitrust attorney who was the, uh, ex deputy director of the FTC's Bureau of Competition. And, you know, this initial verdict, um, not only, you know, is it going to signal to attorneys that, you know, they should file more lawsuits, it's also going to encourage defendants to, to settle, uh, you know, because if you have to choose between paying a huge amount of damages and litigating, you would rather just pay the settlement. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But it looks like really bad news for a lot of brokerages. So on the heels of the verdict, it seems as though NAR or the other brokerages could still appeal. So can you tell us what the latest there is on that and how that might shake out given the possibility of all these other lawsuits that could be coming? Yeah, so both the brokerages and NAR have said that they plan to appeal the case. Um, in the meantime, like while they're waiting for the judge to confirm the decision, um, NAR has said it's also going to ask the judge to reduce the damages. So there will be, you know, that process isn't necessarily over yet. It's possible also that, you know, this part of the you know post lawsuit discussion is that the plaintiff might ask for rule changes, and so NAR is still and the the two brokerages are still going to be kind of involved in that conversation until the judge kind of issues his final decision. On the appeal side, NAR has said that it's going to pay a bond um, that will essentially kind of defer its its payment of all the damages while that um, appeal is is ongoing. We don't know you know what that bond looks like. I'm not sure um, what the rules are necessarily in Missouri and how that works, but uh, you know. They're essentially, you know, trying to project that, you know, they're not necessarily that the judgment amount that's that's been said now is maybe not necessarily what they're going to end up being on the hook for. We don't know. Um, but the appeal is going to take several years. This case itself, it started in 2019. It's been four years. Um, so you, there's, you know, it could go on for a lot longer. And that's what most people are, you know, suspecting will happen. So I wanted to talk about the immediate aftermath of the verdict. Um, first, we saw stock drops across the board for a number of brokerages. Um, can you guys talk about that a little bit? And then we can kind of jump into the second suit that was filed straight after that verdict. Yeah. So um, a lot of the brokerages that have been named in, in suits uh, saw their stock struggle um, even before the verdict, but you know they, they fell sharply after the verdict. So um, Element Stock, Compass Stock, uh, Redfin stock. But, you know, interestingly, Anywheres did okay after the verdict uh, because they came to that settlement. Um, so, you know, maybe there was, um, maybe the market was reacting to that. Um, I don't know. What's interesting is, you know, I didn't notice a lot of questions about the cost of the uh, litigation during conference calls. Folks were more interested in knowing about what impact it would have on commissions and, you know, what, what that would look like. Yeah, it remains to be seen what happens. I think, you know, Compass has seen a slight uptick in its stock since it bottomed out following the verdict. I think a lot of these brokerages have. I could look that up right now if you wanted me to. It'll change by the time this goes out, so it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. So uh, nobody's doing particularly well right now. I also wanted to, you know, shortly after the ruling, there were a few heads of brokerages that came out to speak about the verdict. Bess Friedman of Brown Harris Stevens was one of those. Here's what she said on CNBC. The majority of all real estate transactions are done with two agents, a buyer's agent 
and a seller's agent. And what is being said, I think, is completely untrue. It takes away from the fact that the buyer's agent adds incredible value to the transaction. And so I think the narrative out there, the Wall Street Journal had an article where they referred to NAR as a cartel. It's ridiculous. And I think there's hardworking agents who are out there representing buyers every day. And this totally takes away from that. And I think it's unfortunate. It's the wrong narrative. Can you talk about the general reaction you've heard from brokers? What were their initial thoughts? So, you know, from a brokerage head standpoint, it's kind of interesting because a lot of them, you know, especially with this copycat lawsuit, um, a lot of them are in actively now involved in litigation and can't really say much. Of course, you know, that's what we're assuming is why um, they're not commenting. You know, anywhere obviously is a huge umbrella under which, you know, Corcoran, um, Century 21, um, Coldwell Banker, all of those fall under that. So they, though they've reached a settlement, obviously it's difficult, you know, for anybody involved in litigation to, to speak about it. It seemed like for the most part that the brokerage heads that were talking about it or were willing to talk about it um, were kind of just like defending um, the industry and defending the practices that have kind of been part of it. You know, here in New York, we are not actually, you know, our MLS is completely separate from. Um, from NAR, there's not, you know, we don't usually talk about realtors in New York. Um, we use, you know, terms brokers and agents and, you know, the actual organization and its impact, you know, we have much more to do with the Real Estate Board of New York and they're kind of our governing body here. You know, I think that that, that makes it easier for some, you know, very New York brokerages to kind of speak about it, even though, you know, the, the changes, any changes within NAR may not affect, you know, this market as much. But there, you know, it seems for the most part that they're supporting buyers agents and this kind of um, commission's in the structure that it is under now seems, you know, most people are, are for transparency and, and that's not necessarily a, a controversial thing is to have those conversations be open, but any kind of, you know, worst case scenario impacts where it might impact, you know, buyers agents ability to do their job and in, you know, the prevalence of them in the market, you know, people are, um, at least those that have spoken out or not, they, they want to protect buyers agents and their role, um, in the transaction. So Isabella alluded to this earlier, but Harrison, you and Sheridan reported that literally like minutes after the verdict on Halloween came through, the plaintiff's attorneys filed another class action suit against other residential brokerages. So I know we've talked about how that's possible, but at the time, did that come as a surprise like to the media, to you two, um, or was it something you were expecting? Uh, I mean, it was a surprise for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of learning about antitrust cases uh, as I go here, so uh, you know, I, I wasn't on the lookout for that, but uh, it seems in line with what we've heard from experts, which is that, you know, this kind of verdict signals to uh, attorneys and potential plaintiffs that, you know, there there's some standing here that, you know, you're not going to be wasting your time and money if, if you pursue this. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense. I mean, and it makes a lot of sense that it would come from the same attorney who, who just won this verdict. <laughs> so yeah. um, he, you know, it seems to you know, he, he's already been through this once. So, uh, you know, the second time around uh, should be should be, you know, much the same. So Compass was named in the suit that was filed right after the verdict. Obviously, Compass and its decline has dominated our coverage for the past year. The firm has seen a bit of a turnaround over the past couple quarters reporting positive cash flow. But did CEO Robert Refkin make any mention of the Stitzer Burnett verdict during their third quarter earnings call? Uh, he did. Uh, and uh, you're right. They Compass wasn't a uh, defendant in that case, but they're defendant in this new case. And what's interesting is Rufkin, um, you know, downplayed the, the case a little bit. You know, he said um, 
that we have a, a market example in the U.S. of what the changes will look like. He pointed to the Northwest MLS, uh, which is an MLS that covers, you know, Seattle and the surrounding regions. And a few years ago, they stopped requiring sellers to pay the, the buyer's agent. And the changes to commissions were, were minimal. I think that the average is like five five and a half percent, roughly, uh, the average commission for, for a deal. He said uh, Compass was kind of well positioned to, to weather this storm. So, you know, we'll, we'll see if that plays out. But, you know, it's coming at a really interesting time for Compass because, like you said, they're They've done a lot of cost savings. Uh, they're getting to a point where they're cash flow positive. They're, you know, Refkin said he's really looking forward to 2024. And all of a sudden, you know, this has a potential, you know, we, we don't know what the scope of the fallout is going to be, but, you know, this could be really bad timing for Compass. Let's broaden it a little. I know that you mentioned there could be some international implications to this. Can you get into that a bit more, like what those might be? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the U.S. seems to be kind of an outlier uh, globally, um, you know, uh, there's a lot more exclusive listings here. Um, you know, we've got a lot more uh, sell side uh, representation here. Uh, and the reason is because the, the commissions are, are connected. Um, you know, globally, we see lower commissions, you know, one or two percent. And because of that, we see fewer exclusive listings. That's for a number of reasons. It doesn't really make sense to market and represent a listing exclusively if you're only making one percent off of it. Because there are no exclusive listings, uh, there's a lot less online advertisement of listings. There is no MLS systems. Um, so it's a lot harder to understand what's on the market. And if we can move towards that system if the you know DOJ uh, decides that the changes proposed in the Anywhere settlement and the changes proposed you know by, by NAR and, and by Northwest MLS uh, don't go far enough. So we could see a lot fewer um, exclusive listings. We could see a lot fewer sell-side agents. And, uh, you know, we could see much lower commissions. Yeah. So about the DOJ, I think the last thing we reported is that the Department of Justice was considering opening its own case against NAR. Is that still where we're at now? Yeah. Um, so they're, they're in the process of that. When the Biden administration decided to vacate that initial settlement that NAR reached with the DOJ um, under the Trump administration, the, the DOJ wanted to to reopen its, you know, its investigation into the case. Um, a judge had originally said that they could not, um, and so they filed appeal, an appeal back in June to try and see if they could they could move further on their own investigation. Uh, right now, they're saying that they're they're thinking about their own lawsuit, but we don't know, you know, the status of that or like how concrete it is at this point. Um, we do know that Michael Ketchmark, uh, the plaintiff's attorney, is in conversations with the Department of Justice, or at least that's what he's saying. Um, that he's been talking to them about this case and about you know the issue as a whole, and that they've kind of looped in some other think tanks. So it seems like, at least from, you know, from that point that there is some movement there, um, that they're getting input from Catchmark. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure who the other think tanks are, but that there are some, some organizations that are kind of putting their weight behind this. NAR has been separately embroiled in a sexual harassment scandal. Can you tell us what happened there? Um, yeah. So back in August, the Times, uh, the New York Times published an investigation into accusations that the president of NAR at the time, Kenny Purcell, that he sexually harassed some of the group's employees and that leadership at the organization kind of created this hostile work environment. Um, there's been reports, you know, internal memos that have said, you know, higher ups at, at NAR kind of knew about this behavior. Um, that had been going on for a long time. 
he ended up resigning. Parcell ended up resigning. And the current president, Tracy Casper, she was kind of ushered into her role in the middle of all of this, you know, the fallout from these accusations. Um, these lawsuits were ongoing at the time. Um, and then kind of since she's taken over, there's been definitely some pushback about, you know, how she's handled this and, you know, whether, you know, what the organization is going to do to move forward and, you know, with all this leadership of people. So there definitely doesn't seem to be much crossover between the antitrust issues around broker commissions. But would you say that that scandal coupled with these this myriad of lawsuits has colored the trade group this year? Yeah, I would say that kind of all these factors have just compounded into what, you know, some people are saying is a crisis of confidence in the organization. You know, it seems to some that NARS hold on the industry might be starting to unravel. Uh, the CEO, Bob Goldberg, he actually resigned shortly after the verdict came out. Um, he was already scheduled to resign um, at the end of next year, but it seems he kind of hurried that up and they now have an interim CEO. So they don't have permanent leadership at that level right now. You know, you also have at the same time, like anywhere in its settlement agreement, you know, one of its proposed changes is that it's not going to require its members to be part of NAR. Redfin announced um, a little while ago that it was going to pull out of NAR, that its members in areas that, you know, don't have a realtor controlled MLS, you know, that they're not going to be members anymore. You know, it seems at least from that perspective that NAR might be in line to lose a, a good amount of its membership. And we don't know necessarily yet what effect that will have, but it does seem from the outside like the organization is kind of dealing with a bit of internal chaos. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can also listen on therealdeal.com. For comments or suggestions, you can reach me or Isabella at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, you'll be hearing dispatches from our Miami forum. Tune in then.